Welcome to Technology Transfer IP. Technology transfer is the process by which valuable research, skills, knowledge, and technology developed by educational institutions is transferred to industry for development and to products and services that will benefit society. From basic patent licensing to promoting startups, entrepreneurship, and industry collaborations, while also investing in and managing technology developments. We bring you conversations with the leaders in technology transfer who will share their stories, including their successes, challenges, and expectations for the future. Here's your host, Lisa Mueller. Hello and welcome. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Alastair Hick. Alastair is the Senior Director at Monash Innovation at Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. Alastair has over 20 years of experience in the research and technology commercialization sectors. Prior to Monash, Alastair was the Head of Life Sciences at Cambridge Enterprise in the UK. Since joining Monash in 2006, Alastair has developed a successful licensing and spin-out program including proof-of-concept funds and strategic partnerships with multiple investors. Alistair oversees The Generator, which runs a wide range of entrepreneurship programs across the university and is the chair of the research committee for the $100 million Monash Technology Transformation Institute in Shenzhen, China. Alistair is a graduate of the Australian Institute of Company Directors. He was a director of the Monash spin-out Amero Engineering prior to its IPO in late 2019 and was a founding director of the $30 million Trans-Tasman Commercialization Fund and a member of its investment committee. He previously served on the board of Knowledge Commercialization Australasia and was the chair for four years. He has been a member of the IP Australia Stakeholders Forum, as well as developing and running multiple training programs for technology transfer professionals. And with that very impressive background, welcome to the podcast, Alistair. Um, thanks for having me, Lisa. It's great to be here. Well, thanks again for taking part in the podcast. Generally, I like to start the podcast off by asking our guests a little bit about their journey to tech transfer. Can you tell us about your journey, how you ended up in Melbourne and specifically at Monash? Yeah, it's an interesting story. For, for most of the listeners, you'll, you'll recognize that I'm not originally from Australia. So I was originally from the UK, spent 10 years as a research scientist there at an uh, agricultural research institute. Um, after, after those 10 years, I sort of came to the view that um, I'd, I'd done enough bench research and wanted to, to move on to something different. So I was lucky enough to get a um, a scholarship to do a, an MBA at uh, Cambridge University at the Judge Business School there. So um, I um, spent a, a year doing uh, doing my MBA at, uh, at the Judge. And from there, um, I was looking to bring together the sorts of things I'd learned in my MBA along with my, I know, I still had a passion for science and technology and, and bring those together. And it was a really good time in the UK in the, in the sort of, uh, this was in the late 90s, um, when there was a lot of um, upsurge in tech transfer activity and the, um, uh, and government was trying to help uh, universities and research institutes um, um, take their technology and, and, and get it developed and, and, and out there. So there were a number of opportunities that were around that time um, and, and things were really, really picking off, picking up. So I went from um, went straight from my MBA into a, a small company called Plant Bioscience Limited, who came out of one of the government research institutes, and they specialised in tech transfer in in um, plant science, so very specialist area. So I'd worked in an agricultural research institute, so I had very good technical background, and then brought in the the, the MBA skills. Um, and um, we worked with um, universities and research institutes all over the world, but in a very, very focused area. And um, because we could understand the technology really well, but also had great links into, into all the industry partners, um, we were able to add value, sort of either working with our host institute, where we got a lot of technology from, but also everywhere from Argentina to the US to Europe to Australia, um, and, and working with, uh, with, with researchers all around the world. So I did that for about three years, um, and then uh, an opportunity came up at um, uh, Cambridge University at um, what's now Cambridge Enterprise. They're expanding their tech transfer office, 
and they were looking for um, for someone who had um, some life science background, some life science skills, and also um, deal experience. And I'd, I'd done um, quite a number of deals in my in my first role, and so um, I was I was lucky enough to get get the role at Cambridge. We were already living in Cambridge at the time, so it was it was great. From having a seventy five minute commute every day, I had a fifteen minute jump on the bike and uh, into the office. Nice, and yeah. Yeah, so that 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 was good, and I had um, Cambridge is an amazing place to work. You get exposed to great technology and a huge number of deals. So um, we had an office that had a um, a, a really good culture, um, very much around um, um, getting deals done, getting deals out the door, getting the technology out the door being developed. Um, and uh, it was in relatively early days of the office. So it had moved, it had grown from um, in the mid-90s. They had two people there. By the time I got there, there was about just under 20. Um, and uh, now they're sort of in the I think 50s to 60s now, so they've been growing uh, really, really nicely, and, and and deal numbers and 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 disclosures and everything going on and and other activity going along with it. So I was at Cambridge for um, um, just under four years and uh, moved to head up the life science team there. So doing all the medical research out of out of one of the world's great universities. So it was a, it was a wonderful opportunity to see all sorts of really exciting technology, and. I think most importantly for me and my sort of um, experience was I got to both do and see a large number of deals. Um, and that was um, really uh, eye-opening and um, also really important for developing all my skills um, in, in the tech transfer profession because it, it was all very new then in the UK. So this is in the late 90s. So um, we were all sort of... Um, learning how to do the job on the job. Um, and um, the more exposure you got to deals, the better you got at, at doing that. And we had a very supportive environment as well, very good culture. Um, and so you could learn from your colleagues or take things to your colleagues and and um, and, and they would they would really support you. So I was there for um, from um, just under four years at, at, at Cambridge. And this is the, then the bit, how did I end up in Australia? Well, and, and like my, most things, um, you know, it's a sort of a whole, whole, whole couple of things came together. So um, my brother had, had moved out to Australia um, about five years before, had married an Australian girl. And we'd been out, out, out a few times and really liked it. And I was looking, what was my next move going to be? Um, uh, what I was was I going to you know go look to to run another office in the UK, a smaller one than Cambridge, or what what was I going to do? And then because my brother was out out in in Australia, it made it very easy for us to um, um, get uh, a residency visa, so the equivalent of a green card, um, or relatively easy. These things are never simple, but um, uh, and and we'd really liked it when we came out here. So we we came to the view. We had a um, young family who were not yet at school. It's like um, it was an opportunity to to go and see a different culture, a different work environment. One where we when we'd been here, we'd really enjoyed it, and um, so we 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 took that chance and basically um, got our uh, uh, resident permanent residency visas and um, hopped on a plane. Simple as that. Um, arrived in Melbourne, which is close to, to where my brother lived and worked, and um, basically turned up um, end of 2006 and, and started looking for a job because I didn't have one. It was. Um, I was going to ask, so you came to Australia. Did, did your wife have a job as well? or No. No, so she was a research scientist, and uh, Melbourne uh, in in um, so she'd worked in um, uh, pharma and biotech industry, and Melbourne has very strong um, uh, research uh, biotech industry and a lot of medical research institutes and uh, very good universities who do work in that space. So we're both pretty confident that we'd find um, find roles. We just didn't know quite where or when they would be. Um, so. Then, so we 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 turned up at the um, end of end of um, two thousand and um, six. Um, what I didn't know was that uh, that uh, Australia closes down for business at, at Christmas time, so everything 
literally everything shut. So um, from the end of end of sort of just before Christmas till um, Australia Day, which is an, um, a national holiday on the 26th of, of, of January, pretty much most things are shut. Um, so we turned up and I, I just, um, I contacted a few of the large universities, so Melbourne and Monash in particular, and had a couple of discussions there. And um, I happened to talk to the Deputy Vice Chancellor of Research at, uh, at Monash, and they were just restructuring their tech transfer office, and it was they were looking for some people. So pure luck happened to, to knock on the door at the right time. Um, so um, uh, next next thing I knew was that I was having some discussions with uh, with with uh, some some people at Monash, and um, they brought me on as a consultant for for three months. And um, thirteen years later, I'm still here. Wow, that's an amazing story for you and your wife just to pick up and move and, and not have jobs and have uh, faith that you'd get one and then to get one so quickly. That's an amazing story. That's why I always enjoy asking people about their journey to tech transfer because they are just such fascinating stories. And that's that's a really good one. So thank you for sharing. Um, switching gears just a little bit, I think, um, Alistair, that... Um, there are probably a lot of our listeners aren't very familiar with Monash. Um, and just by way of background, um, in doing some research, I learned that it was named after Sir John Monash, who was a civil engineer and a soldier who was best known for his role as a commander of the Australian Army Corps in France during World War One. And then the university was established there in Melbourne in 1958. And in 2018, had a really huge enrollment of 86,000 students. That's that's a lot of students. And I think a lot of our listeners may, just may not be familiar with how much research Monash actually does. So, Alistair, could you tell us a little bit about all the research that's taking place there, and in particular, the things that set Monash apart, such as the many different research platforms and other things that you have available? Yeah, thanks, Lisa. So, as, as you say, Monash is a really large university, and just to just to let people, the listeners, understand, we have um, uh, campuses. We have um, uh, five campuses in in uh, city of Melbourne. So, for those of you who don't know, Melbourne's about five million people. So, um, large you know, very large city and growing um, very quickly. Um, but we have five campuses there. But we also have a, a large campus in Malaysia and we have um, um, joint research campuses in um, in China and India as well and a small campus in, in Italy. Um, and we're just establishing a, a new centre in Indonesia. So we, we are a very large university and um, uh, very international and outward looking. And uh, as you said, um, you, you, we start to talk about the research. We are um, one of what, what we call in Australia the group of eight universities. So they're the, the eight largest research universities in Australia. Um, and our research spend is about in Australian dollars, about a billion, just under a billion dollars a year. Um, so it's it's really uh, very very significant. Um, particular strengths in um, in in medical, all aspects of, of uh, basic biomedical, all the way through to um, you know things uh, like uh, public health and epidemiology, which is particularly um, important as we as, uh, in the current climes. Yeah, it's going to be important for a while, I think, especially here in the U.S. since we're still not even out of our first wave yet. Yeah. So, um, but so very strong in 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 medical, and and um, it it comes back to it was probably about two thousand and five that the university took a view that it was um, wanting to really develop its research um, capability and capacity, and spent a lot of time and effort um, 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 doing that. But one of the key things that it's done is um, establish about what's now nearly 30 research platforms across the university. So these are the really high-end um, pieces of research, you know, infrastructure, everything. So we have, um, uh, uh, not that this is run by Monash, but we have a, a synchrotron just over the road. We have, um, you know, uh, some of the best electron microscopy um, that you can find anywhere. We have um, uh, antibody um, production facilities. We have, you know, almost any sort of high-end technology that you can you can ask for. We we have 
um, access to it. But the unique thing is that nearly all of them are run as a platform. So they're not run out of someone's lab. They're run um, uh, on behalf of the university. And that enables anyone to access them. And it, it really helps support our research, both our academic research, but also our we're working with our collaborators. So we work, um, helps our industry partners, um, helps our academic um, collaborators. And that's been a really key key um, differentiator for us. We haven't just run them as, as platforms. We've also gone as far as getting ISO accreditation. So when we work with industry partners, we can say this, you can validate this work. It really is the quality that you need for your own uh, research and development activities. Um, and, and that's really helped us in terms of um, uh, developing our whole research capability. When researchers come to Monash, um, they get the ability to access a whole lot of things that they don't have to run themselves. So if it's something that they just need on a, um, you know, an ad hoc or you know semi-regular basis, um, they know they can get it without having to set it up themselves in their lab. And that's a really key um, value add for our researchers. Does that uh, is are those research platforms also available for any spinouts or startups that come out of the university as well? Yeah, absolutely, um, and that's another key, um, uh, you know, uh, a, a key reason for having them. It's it's um, um, so one of our uh, more successful startups startups that IPO'd last year. Um, a company called Amero International. Um, they have a very strong relationship with um, our um, Center for Additive Manufacturing, um, which does a lot of um, 3D printing in, in metals and um, other materials, but particularly strong in, in, in large component metal um, and that, uh, metals. And they have a, um, a very strong link back into the university, um, not only their own capability, but also um, accessing other capabilities across the university. And that that's really helped the company grow much faster than it would have been able to do otherwise. And, uh, um, and we've seen that with a couple of other of our spin-outs as well. So, so that's absolutely something that we, we see as a, uh, um, a real benefit to the platforms. Yeah, real value ahead. Um, given all this research and all these different research platforms that you have there at Monash, can you tell us a little bit about your office then and, and how it's structured? Because given all this that's going on, I, I would imagine you must have a pretty sizable office. Um, I wouldn't say sizable. We're, uh, <laughs> we're, we, we would be, I think, described as a mid-size office. Mid-size. So, um, yeah. So Monash Innovation itself was was formed um, in only um, five years ago. So we've been through, like many universities, we've been through a number of different structures over the years. But um, um, about six or seven years ago, um, I was strongly pushing to um, – uh, bring the tech transfer activities um, uh, into a more um, dedicated and focused unit. And we established that formally in, in 2015 with what we call Monash Innovation, which is our tech transfer office. Um, so we have 15 people within the office um, uh, and um, split into two teams or of, um, of, of uh, uh, um, tech transfer officers. So we have a life sciences team, um, which has five people in it, a physical sciences team that has four. Then I have... Um, um, uh, new Ventures um, Manager. That was a new appointment about two years ago, which has been an amazing success. That's um, uh, uh, That role is very much focused on two things. It's helping our spin-outs and startups um, themselves, but also helping develop the ecosystem around them, in and around them. So working with investors, working with professional services providers, um, and also linking into our um, entrepreneurial um, center, the generator. Um, then I have a small team of support staff, a uh, couple of um, uh, um, patent managers, both qualified patent attorneys who manage our ever-growing um, patent portfolio. And then, uh, and, and as well, a patent secretary who does all the patent administration, which, as I'm sure everybody knows, is a is a is a very significant task. And having someone who's specialist in that area has paid off really, really big time for us. Um, and then um, I only have one administrator, so it's a bit of a challenge for us. But um, she's an absolute star; does a great job. Um, and um, you know, we try and automate a lot of our, our, our 
our systems and processes um, so that we're, you know, um, we don't have to rely on people to do everything, that a lot of that is built into the systems and processes. Um, we can also access um, support from the university itself. So when I say we've got 15, we've also got access to finance staff. We've got um, our legals. Um, um, we work with our Office of the General Counsel of the university, um, etc. Um, so we, we access those types of uh, resources from, from the university. The other thing to, to mention is, is across the university, there are a number of business development managers who are locally based within faculties and institutions. Um, and we work um, very closely with them. Um, they very much have a focus of bringing in research into the university. Um, our focus is on taking technology and innovation out of the university, but obviously a lot of overlap and we work very closely with, uh, with the team of business development managers across the university as well. Um, I mean, finally, we, we occasionally have some interns. Um, it's something that I'm looking to, to grow um, a little bit more. So um, I think typically we have um, maybe, maybe two a year. Um, often they come out of one of the university master's programs where they're doing a specific um, some form of master's of um, you know we have a master's in technology commercialization they, they we've had some out of that and a couple of other related courses um, and um, they've proved very successful but I think it's something that we would we would like to uh, to develop a bit further. Now I also know that you're in charge of what's called the generator can you tell us a little bit about that as well? Yeah, so the generator is our um, sort of central entrepreneurship hub for the university. So um, it came out of some work about um, five, six years ago when I had a couple of students knocking on the door saying, um, we're seeing all these other universities with accelerator programs and support for student startups and what can Monash do? And um, I said, I'll, I'll have a look around look into what what might be possible and looked around and talked to a few people and it was clear that we there was nothing really happening at the university at that point to help them and um, I, I had a, um, a word with a few people and managed to borrow um, a, a resource um, a borrow a project manager to help run something um, and uh, found a little bit of money in my budget and um, we we put together a sort of pilot program that we ran of um, an accelerator program, um, uh, and um, that we took five teams through that. Um, one of them went on to be uh, pretty successful, and was 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 uh, you know the startup was bought out within um, within um, twelve months of, of leaving the program, um, but it demonstrated some activity and that there was real interest. So we went back to the university and said, look, there's people who want to do this. Um, and and uh, we were seeing all around Australia, all around the world, the, the sort of huge upsurge in interest. And so the university said, okay, we'll, 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 we'll back this for the next couple of years and see how that goes. Um, and, and really we found it's gone um, massively successful. It's gone from strength to strength. So, um, you know, we, we, we've got uh, all sorts of teams going through. Uh, we, we, the, 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 the generator does everything from trying to interest and excite um, people in entrepreneurship and innovation through to its sort of flagship accelerator programs where it um, takes um, 10 to 12 teams through a, through a three-month highly intensive program um, uh, to, to develop their businesses to the point where um, they, they can raise either raise funds or significantly grow. Um, we've had some real interesting challenges with the generator this year with um, um, with having to move everything online and that's been um, both a lot of hard work but also incredibly successful. Um, so it's enabled us to um, access more of our um, potential uh, um, uh, staff and students who are interested in the program. So we even had a, um, a, a student team from Malaysia take part in uh, one of our programs um, um, quite recently. And what we what we think that this will enable us to do is is going forward to to scale much better across all our campuses. So um, all our campuses across uh, across Melbourne, but also um, into 
into Malaysia, um, China and India as well. And so we see that, that that's um, going to be really important for us um, going forward and allow us to actually scale the operations of the generator way beyond what we could do with the with the small team that we, we've got based in one of our campuses in, in Melbourne. Um, so we see that that, although it's been a lot of work, has actually been something we've wanted to do for a year or two. Um, we've never had the time to do it, but we had no option this year. And so it um, it forced us into, um, in, into moving things online like lots of universities have had to do for lots of their programs. Um, but it's opened up a lot of opportunities for us. So that's something that we're really excited about. And the, the level of interest is, 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 ama is amazing. Um, uh, the, the number of um, staff and students, and we also take some recent alumni as well, um, has been um, just uh, uh, out, out, outstanding. So um, typically our accelerator program will get between 150 and 200 teams applying for 10 places. Um, and that's, um, that's pretty standard for our, for our program. So, uh, so um, biggest problem is meeting the demand. Um, it's, it's massive. It's a good problem to have, I would say. It, it is. It's, um, it, it's challenging. It's, it, what we've had to do is actually work out what we're trying to achieve. And um, one of the things that makes a, a university different from something such as a, an accelerator program that's run on a more commercial basis is we can look at things from a different perspective. So we actually, we actually focus on what we call talent. We, we're looking for the best people. They don't always have the best or most well-formed ideas, um, but they're the best people. Um, and uh, we had a great example in one of our teams from 2018 who went through um, um, two, two, two brothers who were just finishing their undergrad. Um, and um, the idea that they came up with uh, that they brought into the generator wasn't the best one. Um, but we, we had sort of dealt with them over a number of months and we knew that they were really bright really hard working and they just we were just confident they're going to be successful but halfway through the program they completely ditched their original idea they, did, they didn't pivot they just ditched it because it would they um and and came up with something completely new um they then um, were one of the first teams ever from Australia to get into Y Combinator, um, and um, they've uh, recently uh, raised their, their their first seed round, um, and um, they're going incredibly well. But we we brought them into the program not because of the problem that they, that, that, that they were working on, but because of them, and and. As a university, we can do that, and I, I think um, that differentiates us from a more commercial um, um, accelerator-type program um, and, and also aligns us much more closely with the objectives of, of a university. That's a really great story. And switching gears a little bit, can you tell us about the Monash Technology Transformation Institute in Shenzhen, China, and how it came about and what you hope to accomplish with the institute? Yeah, thanks, Lisa. So uh, the Monash Technology Transfer Transformation Institute, or MTTI, as we we call it, it's much much easier. Um, that's um, a joint venture that that we're running with um, some commercial partners in in um, China, but also with um, one of the um, uh, regional Shenzhen government um, departments. Um, and uh, what we will have is we're, we're developing um, a lab over there where we'll be able to do some, um, it's not research, it's very much development activities. Um, and also through our commercial partners, we have access to um, $100 million of, of um, development funding for projects that we put through um, MTT. Um, the key thing for us about MTTI is, is, is less about the money, but more about access to the Chinese market. Um, as many people will know, it is hard to get into China if you don't have a Chinese partner. Um, and by having both uh, um, uh, Chinese government and um, commercial partners in China who um, are looking to develop some of our um, work with us, develop some of our IP, um, and especially those that have particular um, um, opportunities into China. Um, and often we have a lot of researchers who already work very, very closely with uh, with Chinese collaborators. Um, so we really see it as an as a access to um, you know the world's um, fastest growing and very soon to be largest market. Um, and it's um, it's it's a way for us to do that much much better than we could do on our own. 
Um, it's, it's one of a number of different options that we have for our for our IP. So um, we've established in the in the therapeutic space, we've established a joint venture with our um, um, our largest. Um, Sort of what I describe as as competitor and collaborator, the University of Melbourne, um, who, are, who are just up the road from us, and um, we've established a, a sixty million dollar um, joint venture with them to help develop um, new therapeutics coming out of the two universities, and then we have a number of strategic partnerships with uh, with um, venture and other other firms to help develop. Um, uh, other opportunities. What we're looking to do with all of those is have options. Um, so for each one of the, you know, each one of the uh, individual technologies that come through the the front door, um, each one's different, and each one's got um, different um, uh, researchers associated, different opportunities, different stage of development, and so we we've established over the past. Um, um, 10 years really, um, uh, a model where the more options that we have at each stage, the more chances we have of, of taking something through um, and um, to be successful. So MTTI is a, is a new thing for us, but it's a, it's a great example of our whole whole model, which is around what are the options as we go through. If we want to form a spin-out, what are the options? If we want to um, develop something further, this gives us an option, but it also gives us a massive option opportunity to work into China. Wow, that's a really interesting kind of um, play or, 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 like you said, option um, that I don't think we think about here in the U.S. So it's, I think it's very creative. Um, so good luck with that. Hopefully it, it works out well. I'm, I'm sure uh, it's been a lot of work. Um, switching gears a little bit, I generally like to ask about inventions and licensing, particularly how many inventions you would say are disclosed to your office every year? How many would you... Do you say you file on? And then when it comes to licensing, how many licenses would you say you have have per year? Yeah, so um, inventor disclosure numbers are around um, about 125 a year at the moment. So they've been going up 10 to 15% year on year. And that's, um, you know, uh, it's been very consistent improvement. So if I go back to when I first arrived at Monash, we had 30. We've now got 125, um, and I'm hoping we can get that up to 200 to 250 in another five years. And I've got no doubt we've got enough great research to be able to do that. Um, so that 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 that's the sort of what's coming in the door. Um, we file on probably 50 to 60 of those a year, so just under half. Um, we find that's about the right balance um, of, of uh, and, and it very much reflects the stage development of the opportunities. We want people obviously coming, bringing things to us, um, and uh, we've reached the stage now where where they bring things to us early enough for us to have good discussion most of the time, um, um, but um, uh, uh, not so early that there's that there's nothing there so we, we think we're about right there um, in terms of license deals we probably average currently 30 to 40 a year is about where we're at um, and that, again that's been been rising from um, sort of um, um, probably five six years ago it was in the, the in the 10 to 15 range so we're, we're up around 35 to to 40 a year depending you know on on how things play out and then we'll spin out two to five things every year it depends those come out when they come out they're 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 very much dependent but i think we're going to see that go up really significantly we've just seen the um, release of um, the equivalent of the auto manual survey so a new survey or a replacement survey for 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 something that's been going on in australia quite a long time so a new one called scopa that was um, brought in by knowledge commercialization australasia and um looking at spin out numbers there they've gone um, across the institutions in the past five years, they've gone up three or fourfold. Um, so we've really got a lot of interest and uh, a lot more activity and a lot more capital available. So I think we're only going to see those numbers go up. And what would you say are your top three earning inventions? Yeah, it's a good one. Um, so it, it's always interesting because um, it's always a very small number, as we know. It's a very small number of inventions that bring us um, the big dollars. Um, and um, just to make it clear, as a, as, a, as a university, our primary objective is to to get our technology out there being um, developed and used. Uh, but if we do that well enough and often enough, we will get 
you know the 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 um, the good deals and the and and the occasional you know um, big bucks. So I think if I looked at um, I'll, I'll I'll talk talk about three really quickly. So so um, uh, the one that's made us the most money is was a, um, a spin out company called uh, Monash IVF. So um, your listeners probably don't know, but um, um, uh, a lot of pioneering work in, on IVF was done at uh, at Monash and our associated hospital. Um, and fifteen of the world's first twenty IVF babies were born at Monash. Uh, wow! Yeah, um, and so a huge amount of work came out of sort of as like all these things, um, a decade or more of basic science, and then a decade of developing that into um, in, 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 into um, uh, use in in the marketplace. Um, and and we sold that company um, for for two hundred million dollars. Um, so that was and that 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 was split between the university and the um, uh, and the academic clinicians who were the 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 the, the driving force. So that was a um, very nice return. A um, couple of others. One that's really quite interesting. So we've we've made about. Uh, we make about two million dollars a year now out of um, an app that we developed for um, um, uh, a diet app uh, for for treating irritable bowel syndrome. Oh, wow. So, um, so our uh, one of our research teams. Um, uh, did a lot of work on irritable bowel syndrome and how it's um, often, but not always, but often caused by um, um, poor digestion of of certain complex um, carbohydrates in in the gut, and those are um, uh, are broadly termed a group called FODMAPs. So they developed what's called the low FODMAP diet, and then about um, seven eight years ago they came to us and say we've got this diet that we're, you know, um, we're 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 uh, um, Sort of getting out, talking to GPs about dietitians, etc. And they had this booklet that um, that they used to uh, that used to effectively sell through GPs and dietitians. And um, we gave them, um, I can't remember what it was. It had been about ten or twenty thousand um, dollars to give to a um, a student who turned the booklet effectively into an app. Um, that app has now become um, makes couple of million dollars a year at the moment and those going up every year it's been the number one health app pretty much i think in 50 countries around the oh, world wow that's really impressive it's um it's incredibly successful um and and so the, the the great thing about that is yes it makes us you know a couple of million dollars a year and a lot of that goes back into the research but it helps um uh huge numbers of people with uh with with ibs to 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 treat their their symptoms, so that's always anything that that helps real people in the real world. Um, Absolutely, is a winner by me. Yeah, because so. a lot of those people have to take biologic drugs, which are they're tough on the body and they're extremely expensive. Yep, and um, so that that that's been a been a been a um, another great success. Um, and uh, I mean, one of the other interesting ones. So last year, we we sold some shares in. Um, uh, a company that we'd helped establish, and um, through the life of the company, we made about maybe thirty million dollars out of selling the shares in that company. What was interesting, and this actually gets to the sort of swings and roundabouts of of the whole tech transfer game, is we we set up um, a company to develop a particular drug to to treat some metabolic diseases, um, and um, that that drug had various ups and downs, and in the end. Um, uh, had an unsuccessful phase three trial, but um, they actually um, merged with a uh, another company that had another um, technology completely unrelated to do with um, to do with uh, um, uh, effectively a, a sort of um, uh, a skin. Um, burns treatments or um, uh, helps uh, um, recover from from burns and surgery. So uh, it's it's a matrix that you can put on on um, uh, on on the skin and 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 um, gets bioabsorbed and um, uh, gives a very successful outcome in terms of um, um, for, for for the patient. Um, but that had no nothing to do with us. But because we were involved in the company, 
we ended up uh, making quite a significant amount of money, not for our original technology, but actually through um, um, the, the, uh, the, the, this other um, um, matrix, skin matrix um, um, technology um, that was actually developed across the road at our um, um, uh, government research organisation, CSIRO, um, uh, who we work with on a lot, but not on that particular particular thing so but that was just interesting so we you know and and then we had we held the shares for a long time and you know that went through ups and downs so at one point the shares were three cents a share and then we sold them at two dollars 20 last year so um, um, that was a quite a quite a nice um, nice win for us yeah that's quite an interesting story you don't hear that type of story come out of universities very often that's for sure um switching gears a li- a little bit again um, and talking, going back and talking about your patents. Um, and this is a question that usually makes my um, guests cringe a little bit. I always ask about your office's approach to patent litigation and whether you've had any, you know, generally I, the answer is no, we haven't had any, but I'm just kind of curious given your size and amount of research, if, if you've had any patent litigation um, at your time there. Uh, not directly. So, um, where we have been involved in patent litigation, it's through a licensee, um, and um, you know, we did have a um, case a few years ago where we had one licensee um, who was litigating against another company who we were also working with on something else, which caused a little bit of internal angst. But um, what was actually quite good was that the company that was being litigated against completely understood that we weren't doing anything against them. We were we were just, um, we you know, we weren't leading that litigation. We were, um, so typically we would look to avoid litigation under almost any circumstances. Um, uh, we do have an interesting case at the moment where we have some technology that we could potentially litigate with um, some IP, um, and we're going through a very difficult for us process of determining what we should do. Our strong desire is never to go to court for anything, um, and certainly not on the on the patent side. We have contract disputes that we work through, but that's sure. quite different. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's typically the answer I get from, from most of the guests I interview. Every once in a while, there's a, a little bit of an exception to that, but not very often. Your answer is pretty consistent with the, what I hear from the universities in the U.S., Let's switch gears yet again and talk about corporate partners and the roles they play at Tech Transfer there at the university. Do you have a lot of corporate partners and do they result in you structuring deals any differently than you would when you have just a straight kind of license or licensee situation? Um, absolutely. So um, we do have a lot of corporate partners. One of the challenges we have in Australia is we have a relatively small number of local companies who are large global players who do significant R&D. So um, uh, as a result, we do do quite a lot of corporate partnerships of all sorts of of sizes and shapes. And that's one of the great things about a university like Monash is we're willing to work with our partners to work out how to to structure something that that, that can result in a genuine win-win for for both sides. So, um, you know, we've we've done deals with um, um, pharma companies of that, that vary from, you know, effectively outsourced research where we've been working on. So we had a, uh, we've had a long-term wonderful deal with French biopharmaceutical company Servier uh, in GCPR um, uh, uh, drug development, and that's um, been very, very successful um, based on, you know, some uh, an amazing team that we've got who works in that space at Monash um, um, through to large collaborations with companies like um, company like Woodside who's a, a large energy um, uh, resources company here in here, here in Australia so we haven't uh, we, we started by developing an in- innovation lab with them where we we would bring in um, they would bring in some of their challenges and we would bring in our top researchers in in a, in a number of 
defined areas um, without having really specific research plans laid out at the beginning. And that's worked really, really well. And it's now led to a, um, a really significant energy partnership that we we set up with Woodside where we're doing something much more specific. Um, uh, and, and each one of those will have a variety of different um, IP and, and, and tech transfer deals behind it or built in as part of um, part of the, uh, the, the corporate partnership. How about philanthropic organizations? Do you have um, many of those involved uh, in the university there? Yeah, so I mean, we we deal with the the, the the typical people like Gates and Wellcome Trust and people like that, um, like any large university would do. But we're increasingly seeing interest from um, uh, philanthropic donors who don't just want to give some money to the university, but want to do it do it um, for more specific purposes. So, um, uh, uh, one quite nice example is something uh, which is called we call the World Mosquito Program, which is. Um, um, started off as a as a, um, uh, a program looking at how to control dengue fever um, by um, basically you inoculate um, uh, the the mosquitoes with a, a naturally occurring um, uh, um, bacterium called Wolbachia, and that stops the um, transmission of. of dengue and that's now been shown to work um, in large-scale rollouts in both um, Queensland and and um, very recently in Indonesia but there are there are large programs running that all over um, Southeast Asia uh, and that's um, turning out to be incredibly successful but we've had a lot of philanthropic interest in that beyond the types of we've had money from Gates and welcome but uh, genuine philanthropic donor uh, and that's around making a difference. Um, and they can see that it directly leads to uh, really, um, you know, life-changing um, outcomes. Now, reflecting on past license transactions and or partnerships, what might you have done differently if you knew then what you know now? <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah, a yeah. Monday morning quarterback question yes, for you. It is. What, uh, yeah, what would I do differently now? I mean, so there's a couple of things that I think um, – um, I've learned over the years. I think if I, I talk a couple of different things, one is is alignment. So, are you aligned with your partner? Are you both aligned in the deal that you're doing, and do you both understand the deal that you're doing? Because often things go wrong when that isn't clear, um, and uh, there's a misunderstanding or misalignment, um, and it may not go wrong straight away, but it'll often go go wrong down the track. Um, and so we've got a few examples of, of those over the years in various roles that I've been involved in where, where you think you've, you've, you've done a good deal, but actually um, there's tension built in from the word go and that causes you problems at some point down the track. Um, so that, that, that's one thing. Um, second one is, is in some of our larger relationships and also in some of our spin-out companies is governance, making sure that we put in place the right governance for the particular situation that we're trying to deal with. And as a university, we're good at putting together committees and putting, you know, um, uh, sort of senior people on things. It's not always the right thing to do. It's about trying to understand um, the right governance for a particular situation so you get the right people in the room at the right time um, and it's clear as to what you're trying to achieve so uh, a lot of issues that we've had over the time has been been around around governance and the other one is um, a sort of implementation issue which is less around the deal itself but more around understanding that the deal doesn't finish when you sign it on the dotted line um, and um, you know, we we've seen this time and time again that that actually you need to keep the relationship going, and if you don't do that, then something can or will go wrong down the track. You don't know what it's going to be, but if you haven't got the good relationship and keep it going, you know that's something that that can and will go wrong. Switching gears, you talked a little bit earlier. You told us about three of your top earning inventions. Uh, can you tell us about some of your other successful technologies or startups that maybe you haven't mentioned before? Yeah, so um, so if I think of some of the other ones, I, I, I'll, I'll talk about a couple that are sort of just coming along at the moment. So one of one of them, and this is again a typical tech transfer story. So a researcher walked into my office. Um, I'm trying to remember about a decade ago, 
and um, said, I've got this uh, wonderful technology for um, uh, for blood typing. We can, uh, and I can do it on a piece of paper. Basically, um, I can put a drop of blood on a piece of paper, and I can uh, I can um, tell you what what your blood type is. Um, and he says, Oh, and I've just filed a patent. And they go, oh, okay, right. So we did the normal and sorted out all the background stuff and, and, and went back and saw what he'd filed on and, and changed that and all that sort of thing. But, but um, what that's developed to is a product that, that is just in the very, very early stages of launch, um, which is basically a very low-cost um, ability to do blood typing um, and potentially, um, you know, so uh, move beyond that to various antibody testing as well. Um, that you basically put a drop of blood on a piece of paper and um, that's impregnated with um, with antigens and basically it, um, you apply a solution and then within two minutes it comes up and it's basically you can read A plus or O minus or AB plus. And so you can actually just read it. And, and that technology um, is just being rolled out at the moment. But the great thing is, is that you can print that on large scale industrial size printers. So the cost is going to come down massively. Um, and that's going to be wonderfully wonderful use in in all sorts of um, uh, resource difficult environments um, and 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 we're really excited about that one yeah I was thinking in Africa and in the you know kind of in parts of South America and even in the military for applications yes, whether absolutely. you know you're on a you know in the battlefield on a submarine or wherever you might be yeah so so all sorts of really interesting applications so that that but but it's a typical tech transfer story in that that you know you can see what the product's going to be on on that one on day one and it's like but it's taken a decade to to work to get with, there to get there yeah. yeah but it's um and and there's always road bumps along the way and things like that but um but that one's that one's um you know um something that uh, that we're we're really excited about um and and um yeah, looking forward to that one. Um, and then I think the other one that I'll just just mention really quickly is, is this is something that we're actively working on at the moment, which is um, electrochemical synthesis of ammonia. So um, this is a really interesting, very hot area. Um, um, ammonia can be used as both, obviously, in fertilizer, but there's going to be a massive market for ammonia as energy storage and and um, in use, like in, in in things like shipping as a fuel, um, and um, uh, the ability to to synthesize ammonia uh, electrochemically using renewable resources um, is something that's really exciting for us. So um, we're we're um, um, Hopefully that that'll be a um, a new company coming your way by the end of 2020. We're very close to, to getting that one over the line, um, but that that's potential to transform 100 100 plus year old technology, which is um, very carbon intensive um, and uh, very energy intensive, um, with with uh, with something that can be run completely off renewables. Um, again, it'll take another decade to get to the point where the scale is is significant but um but that's really exciting for us when you i've been in this space for 20 years and and that's in my top three wow this is really exciting technologies yeah that sounds like that last one it could be a real big game changer so we're going to look forward to hearing more about that one hopefully very soon here um given everything you've told us about the university and your office. What would you say two of your biggest challenges are? Um, I think the the primarily the biggest challenge for us is um, we have too much to do. We've got too many things coming in the door, too many opportunities, and we don't get to put as much effort into each one of them as, as we would like. Um, and I can I can give you this the simple answer to say that's a resourcing issue, but it it's 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 much more complex than that. So it's it's a combination of we've been uh, reasonably successful over the past few years, and the more successful we are, the more more things that come our way. So so I'm very happy to have that problem of having too many things things coming in the door. And I think part of the problem for us is trying to rethink how we deal with that that volume because um, it's only going up and it's only going to keep going up. And we can't 
just keep going back to the university and say, can I have more staff? Can I have more staff? We've got all got resource-constrained environments, and that's not going to change massively. So it's really about how, how we can be more efficient and effective. What can we do um, that's going to change how we, we get things moving through? What are the blockages? What's slowing us down? So I think my biggest so so it's a combination of um the the problem i like to have which is too much stuff coming in the door and the problem i'd like to solve which is not how do i have more staff but how do i make those staff more efficient make more efficient use of their time so that they they're adding more value rather than and and it's everything from um, negotiating interinstitutional agreements to um, you know dealing with um, um, dealing with attorneys. What can we make? Th- how can we make things more efficient? Um, and all the way through the process, so that we don't have any blockages, so we can move things forward much more more efficiently. And I think that's the my biggest challenge for the next um, couple of years. Is, is it, because I don't see that I'm going to get loads more resources, but I do see I'm going to need to to use the resources that I've got much more efficiently. Alistair, in the U.S., there's a big emphasis both in the university setting and in corporations and um, industry to try and establish programs to help encourage and assist women inventors and entrepreneurs. Do you have anything like that at Monash, or or is that not as a con- much of a concern in Australia as it is here in the US? Um, it is a really big concern in Australia. At the moment, we are not doing as much as we should. And I think that's the same that everyone sees. So we're looking to establish next year a women's only entrepreneurs program. Um, we run through the generator. We do run a number of women's only initiatives and um, they've been very, very successful. And so we, we try a whole lot of things to encourage more women to come on the program. And in terms of, of numbers, we're not quite at 50-50, but we're not too far away. So I, I, I would say that we're, we're doing reasonably well on the entrepreneurship front. On the inventor side, I think we've got a lot of work to do. And I think we've seen that through data that's come out globally, that there's a lot more work that we can do. And I think that that's something that hasn't really been looked at enough. And what are the barriers? Because a lot of those come actually back to institutional barriers that are um, not, you know, they're, they're very much hidden. Our inventors are, I'll, I'll call them our top academics, but really they're the ones who have the most large established groups and often they're men and they're the ones who've got the resourcing and therefore they have the time to be able to spend more time on these sorts of things and we often find that that's not the case for the women in the academic system and that's a real challenge so we've got a lot of work to do in that space but it's something as a university we're very committed to um, and we we put a lot of resource into um, how do we help develop uh, women within our academic workforce and that's got a very very strong focus on that and we need to do more at our end to help women who want or are interested in becoming inventors to support them in that process. Now, what organizations would you say you and your team are involved in and what value do you think they add? I mean, here in the U.S., we have Autumn. I'm sure you're familiar with, with Autumn as well. A lot of people in university tech transfer offices here are also involved in LES. How about there for you and your team? What are you guys, what organizations are you involved with? Yeah, so um, a number of us are members of Autumn, and I've been a member of Autumn for at least 15 plus years. So um, typically attend the, the annual conference every couple of years, just depending on um, timing and and, um, and and location. But uh, and I find that uh, for me, it's a wonderful way to network with with global colleagues. So um, I spend a lot of time having having chats to people I've known for for a good number of years, and um, I, I find that incredibly useful. And also just to see where things are moving. What are the what are the things that are changing? That's the very valuable so so autumn absolutely les less so it's not 
within the university sector. It's not particularly strong in Australia. It is stronger in the corporate sector in Australia, but not in the university sector. So our equivalent of, of autumn is Knowledge Commercialisation Australasia, so KCA. So um, we're very heavily involved in that. So I was chair of KCA for three years on the board for eight and still get involved in a number of the, um, the courses that they, they run. And uh, a number of my staff are involved in various aspects of, of KCA, both in terms of organisation and, and most of them will attend various events during the year. But that's our equivalent of, of autumn. And it's, it's really going very, very well now. So a big shout out to, to Chair Erin Raymond. He's been doing a wonderful job of, uh, with, with KCA. So that's, that's going really well. What's your view on credentialing things like registered technology transfer professional, the RTTP designation? Yeah, it's an interesting one. So I, I can remember, and this just this shows my age, when discussions were happening when I was at Cambridge around should there be, you know, do we need as a profession, do we need a um, um, some form of credential or um, um, qualification? And um, at the time, I think what we saw was that there was a there was sort of two groups. There was one who thought, yes, this is something that we absolutely have to do and should do, and then there was one another group who was, well we've got on fine, what do we need? Why do we need to come up with this this credentialing? And I think what we're now seeing is it's starting to come of age. So I've had some involvement with um, ATTP through sitting on the course review committee and also on the, uh, the panel review panel for the um, applications. And during my time and, and subsequent to that, really seen an increase an improvement in the quality of of how things are developed and assessed, and I think that's absolutely critical for for long term success of RTTP. And and I think as that then gives the credential some much more validity. And I think what we're going to see in sort of three to five years time, people actually taking it when people are applying for roles and looking at you know promotions and things like that. It's not going to necessarily get you in in the door but it can tip the balance it it shows to me that someone is committed to the profession and that matters because you wouldn't be doing the roles that we do if you weren't committed to it and i think it's really important that that um, that, it, that it shows that but also um, the improvement in quality i think is is really really been good to see and uh, so i i think that we'll we will see the like um particularly RTGP, will come into its own in the next three to five years, especially as the number of people who have the, the uh, credential increases. It seems like it is increasing, and the more guests I ask this question to, it, it seems like it's getting more and more recognition and seems to be gaining in importance. So it's going to be very interesting to watch and see what happens with yeah. it. Alistair, I generally like to close the podcast by asking my guests if they could have any three wishes granted or a vision for their office realized, what would that be? That's a really good question because it's one we're asking ourselves at the moment. So we're actually going through this process of where do we want to be? So five years ago, when I established Monash Innovation, I said, right, we're going to be having 120 to 140 disclosures a year. We're going to be a well-established, well-functioning office, going to be doing 30 deals a year. We're going to be doing this. We ticked all those boxes in 2019. And it's like, okay, so we've done all that, which is what we wanted to do. So what do we, where do we go now? What do we want to look like? And I think um, my my vision for the for the future of, of, of Monash and, and Monash Innovation as part of that is one um, as as part of a, a really thriving um, innovation ecosystem. Um, and what what that means for us is is two things. So or three things actually. So um, we've got the traditional tech transfer process and we need, to, I've talked about how we need to make that more efficient and improve that because if we don't do that, we're just going to be standing still. So that's almost a given. It's not easy to do, but it's it's something that we will be doing. But the other things I want to work out, work on are how do we reach back better into the faculty and work with them better, not just to get more disclosures, but to get them thinking differently, to get them innovating more, to be wanting to be entrepreneurs. How do we do that? How do we support that? And how do we do that at scale when you've got such a large university? How do you actually because you can't do that just through personal face-to-face interaction. And so our um, experience with the generator this year gives us some really good ideas about how we can and should do that. So that's one area that, 
that 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 we want want to see grow. And then the other bit is at the other end. Okay, so we do our normal tech transfer stuff, and we sign on the dotted line, and we do a deal. So what happens next? Well, we all know that most things fail after that point. So what can we do to help that? What can we do to help our spin-outs? What can we do to help our student startups? What can we do to help the, the smaller companies who we work with who aren't so IP savvy um, or don't have, know to how, how to navigate um, you know, the, the university system or how to access government grant funding? How can we, what can we do at that end that's going to enable the stuff that we've spent years developing and then a couple of years coming through the office to get out the door? How can we help make that more successful so that um, the chance of something getting to market, the chance of something making significant returns goes up? So it's, it's working at both ends. And I think that's what we're we're going to see, and and as part of that, we we want to feed into what's a growing um, local ecosystem, such that that is something that when you next ask me on the podcast, you won't have to explain where Monash is or what it does, because people will know, and that's what's going to be success for us. Awesome. Well, I think those are three really good visions for your office, and best of luck getting them realized. Well, Alistair, I can't thank you enough for all your insights and time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. If any of our listeners want to reach out and ask you any questions, where can they reach you? Yep, just uh, email. So alistair.hick at monash.edu um, or uh, reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm happy to, to connect and uh, take it from there. Great. Thanks so much again, Alistair. It's been really great to have this opportunity to talk to you. Thank you for listening to Technology Transfer IP. Please visit us online for more resources at techtransferipforum.com. New to Tech Transfer or a seasoned pro? Autumn is the global member organization for Tech Transfer and is here to help you get connected, get smart, and get ahead. Whether you work in academia, research, government, business development, corporate engagement, or startups. Autumn is dedicated to supporting you through education, advocacy, networking, and promotion. Join and you'll receive 20 free live webinars, as well as meaningful discounts on meetings and courses, insider access to a vast network of colleagues to help you through challenges, and align on new technologies and the university decision makers who license them. Membership is open for 2023. Join us.